You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. everybody and welcome to the seventh annual lecture of the Humanitarian Policy Group at the Overseas Development Institute, Mass Starvation, Tackling the Political Causes of Famine. I am pleased to see more than 100 people here in this room in London and I understand that there are more than 130 people participating online. A bit first about the HPG annual lecture. This is an event that we host every year uh, delivered by a senior figure on a leading humanitarian issue. Past lecturers have included Karen Abu Zaid, former UN Special Advisor on Refugees and Migrants, Ambassador Hisham Youssef, Assistant Secretary General at the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, and Yves Dacord, Director General of the ICRC. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Alex Duval to that distinguished group. Alex is the direct Executive Director of the World Peace Foundation and a research professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. If you've ever worked on Africa or in Africa, if you've ever thought about famine issues, if you've ever been concerned about human rights or the politics of aid, then Alex's name and work would be known and familiar to you. Alex has spent more than three decades working in Africa and his research and critique includes an impressive array of initiatives, including 16 books on famine, on Sudan, on the Horn of Africa, and on the power and politics of aid. He's been the founder of several human rights organizations, a steward of the Minds Advisory Group, an advisor to the African Union. He's been named Foreign Policy's 100 Most Influential Public Intellectuals and Atlantic Monthly's 27 Brave Thinkers. He is a frequent commenter on famine and aid. So what Alex is gonna to speak to us about tonight is mass starvation, the likes of which we thought we had gotten rid of for good. But on Tuesday, the UN issued its annual humanitarian appeal asking for $4 billion for Yemen, not least because half the population of Yemen is now on the brink of starvation. Specifically, what Alex will address tonight is starvation crimes, the use of food deprivation as a weapon of war, a tactic that is prohibited by international law, but one that is being employed consistently by countries today. Can starvation crimes be a useful entry point for legal recourse and political accountability against those governments engaged in unending wars such as Yemen? And what impact will the prosecution of such crimes have on humanitarian action and actors? Please silence your phones here in London. Both here in London online, feel free to tweet with the hashtag HPG annual lecture, or HPG lecture, sorry. I now give you Alex Duvall. Thank you very much. Um, I actually hadn't counted that many books. <laughs> that I'd, um, it's great to be here. It's great to be um, and, and among so many uh, friends, old friends um, and, and, and new friends. And as many of you will, will know, it's a, a year since I published this book, um, Mass Starvation, the, the History and, and Future of Famine. Now, when I started writing it a couple of years prior, I'd actually just planned writing a history of famine because I thought we could actually say this, this scourge has actually been abolished for good. Um, sadly, of course, that wasn't the case. And I had to talk also about the future of famine, which made the book more timely, unfortunately, than I had anticipated. 
And what I want to talk about today is rather than um, going through the, the, the findings and arguments in the book, I want to speak a little bit to the motivation that, that underlay the writing of it and some of the issues um, that have been developing in the last year in particular since, um, since it was published, but also um, that were ongoing at the time of, 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 of completing it and bringing it to publication. And so I'm going to start with the, the motivation and the, and, 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 and the concepts that we have in our minds of, of, of famine, of starvation, of, of atrocity. And I'm going to start with that remarkable book by Primo Levi, Survival in Auschwitz. And there was one sentence which I chose from that book as the, the epigraph for my book, and I will read it. They crowd my memory with their faceless presences, and if I could enclose all the evil of our time in one image, I would choose this image which is familiar to me. An emaciated man with head dropped and shoulders curved, on whose face and in whose eyes not a trace of thought is to be seen. If you read that book, he is preoccupied. He and the, the inmates of Auschwitz are preoccupied with hunger, with deprivation, with, with the, the, have what it means to have a spoon or not have a spoon, with the, the, the minutiae of life um, under a regime which was restricting their food to below the minimum required to, uh, for, for life to prevail. And so for Primo Levi, the image of evil in the 20th century was the starving person. And, um, and I chose that because the, that representation of all the evil of our time did not actually come to pass. What came to pass in terms of our imagery of the Holocaust as the paradigmatic evil event was the gas chamber and the extermination squad, not the starvation. The starvation that accompanied World War II and the Holocaust faded into the background. And there's a remarkable entry in the diary of the Polish governor general of, of, of um, sorry, the, the Nazi governor general of Poland, Hans Frank, which was used against him uh, in, in the trial of Nuremberg. And when he wrote, that we sentence 1.2 million Jews to die of hung hunger will be noted only marginally. And sadly, that was the case. As many people died from starvation and related causes during World War II as died from violence. And had the Nazi hunger plan, the program, the program of starving to death 30 million people in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in the aftermath of Operation Barbarossa, had that reached its projected quota, then perhaps Levy's image would be the, 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 the paradigmatic image of evil because 30 million people starving to death would have been, the, or being starved to death would have been the greatest atrocity of that era. But the, somehow that starving man has, has, has faded from our imaginary. And there are important reasons for this which I'll come back to. But, but for whatever reason, the crime of starvation is too rarely recognized as such. That is my beginning point. Now, famines occur on a spectrum from those whose immediate cause is natural calamity right the way through to those whose immediate cause is, is genocide or 
or acts of extermination, with a range of manifestations in between. Um, and most of those in, in the contemporary era are somewhere in between towards the war and political repression end of that spectrum. But it is famines purportedly caused by drought and, and even more so in, in, in the imaginary overpopulation that dominate our imagery. A year ago, if you did an, an, a Google image search for famine, you would get pictures of starving African children and, and, and arid landscapes. It's beginning to change, I might say, which is good. Um, but the reality, as we know, as all of us in this room know, is that famines are principally caused by war and political repression carried out with the utmost disregard for human life. Now, what I want to do in this lecture in the next half hour or so is to explore why it may be transformative to recognize starvation as a crime and why this moment may be actually unexpectedly propitious for us to do so. Now, two years ago when I was doing the legal part of the research for my book, Mass Starvation, the consensus among the lawyers was that the law prohibiting starvation in war and, 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 and by governments was very weak. The Lieber Code developed for the American Civil War expressly permitted starvation as a method of war, permitted starvation, provided it was used to, to, to expedite the surrender of the enemy. The Nuremberg Tribunal, despite quoting instances of forced starvation and, 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 and that entry from Hans Frank, actually had no prosecution specifically focused on, on starvation. And the, the Field Marshal Wilhelm von Lieb, who was responsible for the siege of Leningrad, in which a million people died, was actually acquitted of charges related to enforcing the, the starvation siege on the grounds that the laws of war, as they existed, permitted that as an act of war. It was not a criminal act, said the judges. They wished it were otherwise, but they could only interpret the law as they found it. Now, the victorious allies were ready to innovate law in Nuremberg. Crimes against humanity was innovated. Genocide was mentioned. But they did not innovate the law in this area. And the principal reason why they did not do so was they themselves had used starvation as a weapon of war during both world wars. Indeed, even while the Nuremberg charges were being prepared, the, the, the US Air Force was mounting what it called Operation Starvation to try and get Japan to submit through a total blockade. Did not, of course, come to fruition, but that was their potential plan. And subsequently, the measures to prohibit starvation have been incomplete and half-hearted. There was nothing in the 1949 Geneva Conventions. The 1977 additional protocols did say that starvation is prohibited. But there were so many caveats and get-out clauses, oh, being overridden by military necessity, etc., that it didn't add up to much. With the post-Cold War establishment of special tribunals in Yugoslavia and elsewhere, there was an opportunity to test the law. But the opportunities were really not taken. The special tribunal for Yugoslavia the prosecution um, contemplated bringing charges of starvation against the general uh, Stanislav Galic, responsible for the siege of Sarajevo, but decided not to do so. They didn't think it would be possible to prove them. I think they were being um, a little bit uh, weak-kneed. Um, the extraordinary chambers of the courts of Cambodia could have used uh, extermination through starvation as one of their, their, their major charges. Um, but the prosecutors were under 
pressure to obtain quick convictions, and it was much more straightforward to press charges based on very well-tested um, charges, well-tested crimes, and, and, and get the villains uh, in jail. The same calculus held for the special prosecutor in Ethiopia after 1991. Now, these recent failures are less because of a shortcoming in the law than a lack of prosecutorial ambition. And that, I think, reflects the lack of public pressure and activist attention. And there's an instructive parallel here, which is sexual and gender-based crimes. Sexual and gender-based crimes, rape, have never been lawful in war. But it was only when there was public outcry and outrage and pressure for prosecutors to bring such charges that lawyers paid attention to the law and found ways in which it could be done. They have had few successes in the courtroom, but the attention of the issue has tightened the understanding of the law and raised uh, uh, public consciousness about it. But over the last two years, I think we're beginning to see something similar happening with the law around starvation. The very fact that lawyers started discussing this law, which they had not been doing, the, the prohibitions um, on starvation, which I'll get to in a minute, the specific ones, meant that this rather neglected backwater of international humanitarian law was, was connected into the mainstream of humanitarian law, which in the meantime had moved on. And so the simple fact of discussing what is possible actually meant that the lawyers began to think, actually it is possible to bring prosecutions here in a way that we, we just didn't think of beforehand. And United Nations Security Council Resolution 2417 on armed conflict and hunger passed in May this year exemplifies this. There is no new law. And in fact, a number of, a number of the members of the Security Council were insistent that there should be no new law. But it clearly states that starvation of civilians in wartime may be a war crime. It's a very high-level political chapeau. And as such, it is a further impetus to clarifying and sharpening the law. Now, the sharpest end of the criminalization of starvation would be prosecution, and I'll get to that in a minute. It's what would generate the most headlines, and it would scare the perpetrators the most. But I don't actually think it's the most important step. I think actually simply recognizing the crime is the most important step. Let me now go back to Primo Levi and one of Primo Levi's other contributions, which is very relevant to this topic, which is this concept of the gray zone. He used the gray zone to refer to the world, the universe of those who were interned in the concentration camp, victims of a greater crime, but turned into perpetrators of many lesser but more immediate ones, reduced to scrabbling amongst themselves for scraps and crumbs that might make survival impossible, leveraging those minutiae of hierarchy among the prisoners in the camp on which life or starvation would depend, becoming rather pathetic little accomplices in their own degradation. Now, Primo Levi's concept of the grey zone has been applied to the Irish famine, the Great Hunger in Ireland by Brendan McSwain. And he writes, and I quote, the gray zone is populated by obscene and pathetic figures where sometimes, but not always, judgment is impossible. The gray zone of the great famine is the demimonde of supers and grabbers, money lenders and mealmongers, those who took the biscuit from the weak. 
It is where one finds the mother who denied one child food and fed another, a boy who slit the throats of two youths for a bag of meal, and indeed rumored cases of cannibalism. He asks, can we pass judgment on this? And the enduring memory of the survivors of the famine is not the greater evil inflicted upon them, the greater responsibility that lay ultimately here by her, with Her Majesty's government in London, but it was those immediate wrongs suffered and inflicted which, which would poisoned their consciences for so long. So it took 150 years for a British Prime Minister to acknowledge and say sorry for what happened, not a formal apology, just saying those in government at the time failed their people. But it took equally long for the survivors of the, 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 the descendants of the survivors to begin to, to memor memorialize the dead with dignity, to raise their eyes from the, 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 the experience that had been passed on from their parents and grandparents and great grandparents of humiliation, degradation, feelings of worthlessness, and self-blame. It was not only the death of individuals, it was the death of, of a community and its sense of self. They didn't, they, the, the, the survivors blamed themselves. They saw the famine as the inevitable working of providence or of modernity. They didn't really recognize the nature of the harm inflicted upon them. And the name is important. Many Irish people object to the name famine because they think famine implies natural scarcity. Of course, those of us who study famine don't think so, but in the popular consciousness, it does. So they like to call it the hunger. In a lecture in Ireland on the occasion of the commemoration of the Irish, the great famine in Ireland, I made two suggestions. One is I said, let's call it the starvation in Ireland because starvation is transitive. It is something that people do to one another. And secondly, why don't we call it the Great English Famine in Ireland? Because after all, it was the English who administered the famine. Um, and I think the proper naming of these events can be the beginning of the emancipation from that gray zone of, 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 of the people who, who, who are themselves suffering it. And then we can begin to, to, to disperse these clouds and assign responsibility more clearly. And I'll give a, another contemporary example that is, that is perhaps even more disturbing, which is from South Sudan, where there is a, a, a custom among the Dinka that those who died of starvation are not buried in the ground. The belief is that if you bury someone who dies of hunger in the ground, then you are interning hunger in your own land. The bodies are cast out into the wilderness to be eaten by wild animals. And there's stories of this from 1988 from 1998 and indeed from the, the recent famine. And it's hard to think of the shame of suffering hunger being exposed in such a raw manner. The physical pain of starvation being matched by the psychological pain of blaming oneself and one's family for the failure. So I think for the famished people of South Sudan, it would be a vital step for them to have their starvation properly recognized as a wrong inflicted, not just a suffering experienced, and to begin to disperse this gray zone, to recognize that famine is a social condition not of their own making. So this is the starting point for this concept of starvation crimes, and I think the first work that really it can do, to recognize uh, what we are dealing with, to give it a name. And let me give it the name starvation crime. 
I'm not sure whether this is new, but let us give it currency, even if it's not new. It's a political chapeau. It does not refer to a specific legal category as such, but brings together a range of crimes under different provisions of international criminal law to give them political salience. And in this regard, it's instructive to remember the uh, David Sheffer, the former US special envoy for war crimes, his coining of the term atrocity crimes to refer to a cluster of particularly atrocious crimes prohibited under different elements of law. And he did so partly because he didn't want the debate over atrocities to get sidetracked into a fruitless debate as to whether atrocities constituted genocide or not. So similarly, I think starvation crime can bring together three different components of law and can do an end run around the question which can, which can preoccupy us, indeed may even be doing so this week. Is there famine? Is there not famine? All we need to know is that deprivation is being inflicted. Now, starvation is a criminalized act under the laws of war. Article 54 of the first additional protocol, Article 14 of the second additional protocol, um, prohibit the destruction of objects indispensable to the survival of the civilian population. A, a similar prohibition is found in the Rome Statute, Article 82b25. To be considered a war crime, the perpetrator must deploy starvation against a civilian population disproportionate to legitimate military objectives. If carried out with the intent to destroy a protected group, then under, that by creating conditions of life that would bring about the group's destruction, it can also be prohibited under the Genocide Convention, Article 2C. Now, there has to be a threshold of gravity, a significant number of people, and severity, deaths or suffering, and it must be orchestrated. But, it's not, but there is no requirement that there be an official declaration of, of, of famine. We do not need to wait on a definitive diagnosis using, let's say, the, the IPC scale. So the category starvation crimes encompasses a range of criminal acts that include three central elements. A, an outcome that includes deprivation of food and associated suffering, not necessarily mass death. B, the act of depriving persons of food and destruction of other items or prevention of activities indispensable for survival. And lastly, criminal intent, which need not be the intent to inflict starvation as such, only awareness that the act will have such a consequence. Now, the most obvious and high-profile implication of the framing of starvation crimes is the possibility of prosecuting criminals. And I've no doubt that this could actually be done successfully. And um, in, in a newspaper article this week, I proposed that we should start with uh, prosecuting Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, for starvation crimes in, 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 in Yemen. I've been making this proposal for about a year. It's only in the last few weeks that, um, that actually it seems to be getting a little bit of, of, of resonance. Um, so let's take the hypothetical prosecution of, of, of the Crown Prince. He would be charged in whatever court with having knowingly and deliberately over an extended period acted in such a manner to deprive millions of Yemenis of the means necessary for them to survive. Even if he launched the war in Yemen three and a half years ago without that intent of causing starvation, even if he decided on waging economic war in preference to a ground attack, without intending to cause famine, and in fact intending to have lesser humanitarian consequences, nonetheless, he would soon have become aware 
that mass starvation was the inevitable result of his actions. Yet he did not stop. Indeed, he intensified those actions. Now, one of the difficulties that um, has deterred prosecutors before, such as in the, the Yugoslav case of Galich, was the long and distended chain of cause and effect between someone committing a starvation crime and, 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 the, and the suffering and death of, 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 of a victim. I think the fact that it takes many months to starve people in this way, or many years, actually turns that from a disadvantage to an advantage in the prosecutor's case. The information is available to the perpetrator that he and they are all men. It is all man-made. Um, uh, the information available about the, in, the consequences of those actions are such that they have many opportunities to stop, and in failing to stop, they are then um, condemning themselves. The actions include an air, sea, and land blockade, not entirely effective, but nonetheless very significant. Moving and closing the central bank, stopping the payment of salaries, pensions, and welfare payments. Air attacks on civilian targets, the near total destruction of the artisanal fishing fleet, the closure of many businesses, many people becoming unemployed, the destruction of agricultural infrastructure, including extension offices, irrigation works, terraces, the destruction of water infrastructure, sanitation, the destruction of health facilities, etc., etc. I think we're all familiar with many of these things, including also the obstruction and interruption of humanitarian aid. Not the main factor, but an important one. Um, now, the fact that the famine may not have officially been declared in Yemen um, is, I think, not relevant to this. We can discuss, if necessary, what the controversies around the, um, the data and the fact. But I would particularly draw attention to the fact that even in IPC phases three and four, short of famine, there are excess deaths. And for a large population over several years, for people to be in crisis or emergency phase implies really quite substantial numbers of, of, of excess deaths, which can add up to, to the numbers necessary for us to, to identify it as a famine. Now, in his defense, the defense council might argue that Yemen was already a poor and food insecure country with a long-standing water scarcity. So these things were already killing Yemenis. So what's new? To which the prosecution would answer, well, if you knew that Yemen was poor and food insecure, then why fight a war of starvation under such circumstances? Surely this is an aggravating factor. It is particularly reprehensible to use starvation as a weapon in, on such a population. Um, now, there are many individual factors that taken on their own would not be considered criminal, like closing a central bank, like stopping payment of salaries, um, uh, uh, etc. Um, like some, um, some prohibitions on, 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 on trade, closing the airport, etc., etc. But in aggregate, all those actions add up to infliction of, of uh, conditions under which it is impossible for many people to sustain life. Um, the fact that the Houthis have used food allocation for political purposes and even starvation in, in certain um, combat operations does not, of course, exonerate the, the Saudis, and I should add the Emiratis, from doing the same on, on, on a larger scale. Um, I'd add in passing that I, I think that the 
nature of the starvation crimes is such that the Crown Prince might actually be more exposed, more vulnerable to prosecution on this score than, than on some of the other scores of which he is being, um, uh, he is, he, he, he's, he's being considered a culpable at the moment. Now, there are some complications, and we could perhaps go into those in the discussion. I'm sure that uh, an audience of humanitarians will immediately identify some problems. Prosecutions need to be in the interest of victims and the interests of justice. And there are strong arguments that, these, that prosecutions might get in the way of conducting humanitarian operations, might endanger humanitarian workers, might um, push humanitarian agencies into being or being seen as, um, as, as collecting uh, uh, evidence, being witnesses for the prosecution. Um, these might caution against prosecution in some cases. Um, we can discuss this, I think, in, in the case of Yemen, uh, not so. Um, we shouldn't rule out prosecutions um, altogether. Now, it's unlikely that there will be many prosecutions worldwide for starvation crimes, perhaps not any. Very few of those who commit these crimes will actually find themselves in court or in prison. Prosecutions would be largely symbolic, a signal to perpetrators, hopefully a deterrent, and an affirmation of solidarity with victims. They are not an end in itself. We are never going to get all the starvation criminals in jail. But prosecutions would, I think, make the more fundamental objective of making the infliction of starvation morally toxic it would make that easier. It would make it more less thinkable to commit starvation crimes. But let me move on to some of the other implications of, of the criminalization of, of starvation. Let's look at the toolkit of transitional justice instruments. Because here, I think, this is where we begin to see uh, a, a greater possibility of, of, of real practical action and impact, but also some other controversies that will arise. This is a field that has not at all been explored by policymakers, by lawyers, and by academics, and it's a wide open field, and perhaps we can start exploring it. So the transitional justice toolkit, let me look at three elements in it. The first is recognition truth-telling, memorialization, and naming. And I've already talked about what I see as the importance of naming and the importance of those who are uh, in situations where they are undergoing uh, starvation or where they are documenting abuses uh, inflicted on populations that, um, that are suffering hunger. The importance of recognizing um, starvation um, as a crime. Because... Those who perish of starvation have for long been treated as second-class victims. Typically, if you read about, let's say, the Armenian genocide, you will read about those who were killed in massacres, and then as a footnote, and so many other people died of starvation, as though they were add-ons or footnotes. Um, in most famines, there's no public consensus about the extent to which political authorities are culpable, and the victims end up blaming themselves or sharing some of the blame or being blamed for being feckless, for having been born in the first place, as in the, the, the overpopulation arguments, for example, in Ireland. Um, and in the case of, of genocidal famines, such as Armenia, such as the Herero in, in, in Namibia in 1904, such as the Eastern Front in World War II, as I say, they are, those who die of starvation have been seen as second-class 
victims. The fog of that grey zone hangs over them. So I think there should be recognition, memorialization, memorialization not just of those in the places where people died, dignifying the victims, but also in the places where, the, where starvation was planned and administered to remind the perpetrators or their heirs of what was done. I think it would be appropriate to have one outside the Treasury or the Foreign Office to memorialize the, 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 the British colonial infliction of famine in, 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 in India and, and in Ireland, and um, perhaps remind some of our, our, our political leaders of, about what global Britain meant at the other end of the, uh, of the bayonet. Um, so recognition of the harm, naming it, is the first step towards emancipating its victims um, from silence, from self-doubt, self-reproach. Then there's material reparations, compensation and restitution. Starvation is, of course, a material deprivation. Its victims not only die, but many more of them than, 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 than those who die lose their assets and livelihoods. Now, this is a complicated topic, and one can immediately begin to see some of the perils of going down a systematic um, reparations route. For example, at an individual level, if, if, if compensation is to be individualized, how does one determine that an individual suffered or lost because of a starvation crime as opposed to other forms of misfortune that may have happened uh, at, at that time? It would be very, very difficult to determine at an individual level. <laughs> and secondly, there's an issue that most of these, these calamities strike in aid-dependent countries, so that if in, in, in the reconstruction of, of, let's say, South Sudan after a famine, um, there were to be a, a fund for compensation, restitution, reparation, that fund would end up most likely being funded by donors. Now, donors are not themselves culpable for the infliction of starvation crimes, so they would not want, quite justifiably, to be required to pay into such a fund. And of course, if the government of South Sudan were putting its own funds into such a fund, then it would be starving other essential rehabilitation activities. So there, there, and then there's a more fundamental problem, of course, which is that material reparations, restitution, are primarily intended to restore the status quo ante. Now, in the case of people who are vulnerable to famine, we do not want to restore the status quo ante. Those were conditions under which they could be starved. We want to have massive improvement in, 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 in their conditions of life. So those are a number of the complications. But I would say in a case like Yemen, where we have a case of two extremely wealthy countries, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, inflicting starvation on, on, on another, then I think the, 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 the argument for reparations is, is, is pretty solid. And um, actually, how those reparations should be, um, should, should be instituted is, is, is a practical question. Um, and then the third and final element here is non-repetition. Um, the, 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 the reparations, transitional justice, is about guarantees that, this, that this, these crimes will not be repeated in future. This is fundamental to the transitional justice agenda. And let me point to two ways in which we, we could pursue this. And um, I would say we pursue it through political accountability rather than criminal accountability. And this is, this is easier to achieve and, and I suspect more effective. 
Given that those responsible for mass starvation are political leaders, if they're called to account by their constituents or shamed by their peers, that should ensure that they are incapable of perpetrating famine again. That will ensure the guarantee of non-repetition. Now, this is very relevant to the long-standing debate that's been going on for 25 years now, prompted by Amartya Sen and his remarks about democracy preventing famine. It's a supposition rather than a proven hypothesis. It's been elaborated, it's been refined, but the core is true. Processes of public scrutiny and awareness, political mobilization and accountability are effective in ensuring that governments do not perpetrate famine and are active in preventing it when it threatens. Democratic sensibilities, institutions and processes are, are neither necessary nor sufficient for pre preventing famines. There are counterexamples. But they are a very powerful indicator of protection against famine. Now, of course, those democratic sensibilities, institutions and processes tend to break down or they're overruled in cases of political emergency like civil war or fear of terrorism. Humanitarianism gets put as a second order priority. So the real test of the democracy prevents famine hypothesis is whether a government maintains that humanitarian priority under exceptionally difficult circumstances. And very often, of course, it does not. But even when there is such a domestic failure, international norms and institutions can persist. And the role of starvation crimes as an international agenda then comes to the fore. Those leaders can be named and shamed in international fora, such as the United Nations such as the African Union. And actually, this is one of the functions at which the African Union potentially could be quite good at. It is a good mechanism for generating and consolidating norms and principles using a, a mixture of formal declarations, but more importantly, informal shame, shaming. <coughs> Meetings of the a African Union Peace and Security Council function a little bit like a hybrid between a chief's court uh, or a communal inter-conflict resolution for forum and the United Nations. And Article 4H of the African Union's Constitutive Act specifies the right of the Union to intervene in cases of grave circumstance, namely war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, which now expressly should include starvation crimes, do include starvation crimes. Now, it's very unlikely that the African Union would ever intervene militarily in the case of starvation crimes. Very, almost impossible to consider it happening. But the very fact that a country would, be, would have its starvation crimes raised to the Peace and Security Council would be a very powerful mechanism for mobilizing shame against a member state and perhaps thereby getting better behavior. Um, the calling card of legitimacy that those rulers in places like South Sudan Congo, etc., rely upon so heavily when they go to the African Union would be devalued. Now, there is no comparable regional mechanism for the Middle East, which is part of the reason why starvation crimes have been perpetrated with impunity in Yemen and Syria. And this places greater responsibility on the United Nations and the leading powers in the Security Council to uphold those norms and bring the pressures to bear. And I would make one point here, which is that one of the legal implications of a, of a clearer specification of starvation crimes would mean that in 
host in, in donor governments here in London, in Washington, in Paris, when a debate within government arises about the significance of acts of starvation being perpetrated by a friendly power um, or being allowed to happen as against uh, other foreign policy priorities like regional security or selling weapons, it would give, I think, the legal counsel of um, DFID or USAID a strong uh, card to play in, in, in cabinet discussions and say, this government is going to be violating a very fundamental tenet of, of international law if we devalue our humanitarian priority beneath those other considerations um, of, of, uh, of our state. I think the discussions in Somalia in 2011, the discussions in Syria in the last couple of years might have turned out differently had the starvation crimes agenda been uh, more forcefully articulated. <coughs> so in conclusion, I would say the field of starvation crimes is an academic, legal and policy landscape that's only just opening up for exploration. But much of it is actually remarkably familiar. Some of those landmarks are known. Others are recognizable from other comparable exercises in developing international humanitarian norms, such as on sexual and gender-based violence, protection of civilians, etc. So I'm sure that we will not have much difficulty in finding our way through this uh, particular new landscapes. And for me, the real and, and really agreeable surprise over the last year is in giving versions of this talk uh, around the world, um, how much of this actually has ascent right across the political spectrum. Uh, perhaps I've been become too jaded by years of engagement in the practicalities of, of these situations and therefore overly pessimistic about what a moral agenda can do. But I've been agreeably impressed by people who I would not have expected to support this, let us say, um, on, on, on political right in Washington, D.C., have been ready to affirm um, this principle. And at a moment in which the agenda of liberal multilateralism is under threat, I think there are a few places on which we could collectively make a stand and protect those normative and practical gains that have been made um, over the last 50 years, and I, su I suggest that this is, this is one of them. It's not um, misplaced utopianism or nostalgia to say that liberal humanitarianism had delivered enormous practical benefits for the world, including the near abolition of famine. It's a simple fact. And, and, and therefore, the, I, I, just to reiterate, I think the simplest step is to name the crime for what it is. Mass starvation, the forcible reduction of a society to a situation in which its livelihoods and social and moral fabric are rendered and ripped and torn is an act for which its political and military perpetrators should be ashamed, not its victims. And I hope that if we are able to do this, we will be able to allow those whose children died of hunger in South Sudan to bury their children in dignity and not throw them into the wild. Thank you.
Thank you for that, Alex. My gosh, so many layers upon layers of issues that you brought up and so many questions in my mind and I'm sure in the minds of those in the audience um, about what you've said. But maybe something first about what's top of mind for me and particularly what's going on today and in this past week in Yemen. Um, you know, you talked about calling out um, Prince Mohammed bin Salman for starvation crimes um, for the situation in Yemen. Um, and you also talked about bringing him up before the international court is creating starvation crimes as a as a as tox as morally toxic, and that being a, a an impressive symbol to the rest of the world. But you know, as we know, even when people are called before the international criminal court, whether they go or whether they're not, whether they're prosecuted or not, it actually doesn't change the behavior of governments, and it doesn't really have an effect necessarily on people on the ground. So what is the value then of calling out um, bin Salman on, um, on these starvation crimes to the people in Yemen today, or even in the near future, um, who are starving now? Um, I, would, I would dispute that, that, that calling out criminals doesn't change things. Um, I think that you know, the, the, uh, a, a number of the the, the ICC prosecutions have been poorly handled. I think it hasn't been particularly professionally well run, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, um, and, and, and I, and I would not advocate, let's say in the, in the case of South Sudan, I wouldn't advocate going after junior level commanders there because I think those are the people who, you know, if the system as a whole is left intact, those people will then have, you know, have be put in a corner. You, it's very hard to get them course, and, and they would continue to have life and death decisions over humanitarian operations. But a case where you have a, 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 a government of a neighboring country pursuing these major policies that, um, that, uh, that are causing uh, this massive human deprivation, um, I think calling them out, uh, it, the credible threat of prosecution and, and, and the articulation of, of, of international moral outrage um, and the legal opinion in Western capitals that actually, you know, London or Washington or Paris might be complicit in, in, in a crime against humanity or a war crime should they not change their behavior. I think that can change things. I hope so. Okay, I'm sure there are a lot of questions in the audience, so why don't I take a few? Um, and then please, those of you who are listening online, please send your questions in so that I can answer them or I can ask them of Alex as well. Um, when you ask a question, please identify yourself and speak into the microphone so that everybody here and online can hear you. I, have, I see two questions, one in the far corner over there and Joe here in front. Monica Blagescu from the Disasters Emergency Committee. Alex, thank you very much for that uh, extremely thought-provoking uh, talk. Uh, I'd like to turn our attention to humanitarian agencies uh, who I would argue are in a catch-22 because very often um, they depoliticize the causes of famines and appeal to the public for funds by um, abiding by the humanitarian principles and very often use imagery that perhaps can be seen as misleading about the political causes of a certain humanitarian crisis. What advice would you have for humanitarian agencies raising funds from the public to deal with the aftermath of such crimes? Thank you. We have a, a question here in the middle. Joe, does anybody have a microphone? 
Alex, thanks. I mean, it's, it's sobering that we're here in 2018, still talking about famine. Um, uh, I think my, my questions are really around language, around two words. One was starvation and the other is famine. So um, I wonder, the, the, the kind of potential challenge for the language of starvation is that it implies that we can kind of narrow the cause of death to hunger. And as your own work has highlighted, it's very complicated why people die in these situations. So it's, it's sort of malnutrition, but then disease. So I wonder whether really what we're talking about is situations where you have mass excess mortality in effect. Um, and the other is the word famine, which is, um, as you've just described in relation to Yemen, there's this sort of contro controversy at the moment, whether we're IPC four or five. And does that really matter? So like, are we, I suppose there are two questions here. One is, are we really talking about um, mass excess mortality? And the other is, uh, are we setting the bar too high in terms of uh, the precise definition of the F word? Thank you. Thank you. And one more question over here, Dan. Hi, Dan Maxwell from Tufts University. <coughs> so, uh, Alex, let's say um, you do prosecute uh, the Crown Prince, and, and I'm his uh, defense lawyer. The first thing I would say is, Look at how much money we've donated to the humanitarian cause in Yemen. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, th I think that's one of, the, one of the most uncomfortable facts that we face about the current situation, is that, that the, the belligerents are the donors to the humanitarian cause. Can you um, tell us what, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> three, three, three good questions. Um, um, the, 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 the imagery and the narratives of, of, of the non-governmental agencies raising money from the public, I mean, this, has been this issue has been going on for decades, as long as, you know, and, and it's never been resolved. Um, and and, there, and, and I, I guess there's some progress. There are codes of conduct, et cetera, but, but still it's, it's astonishingly how, 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 how resilient the... The, the impulse is to give is, is to depoliticize these things and, 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 and to make it purely charitable and non-political. And the the UK, UK charity laws make it even more difficult to do that in terms of of, 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 of advocacy with with um, with the UK government getting more and more difficult. And 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 so I think the. Um, if, if, we, if we continue on the current track of, of government policy and, and, and um, squeezing that, that, that political advocacy um, space, um, most NGOs are simply going to have to have a, a non-charitable advocacy arm and, 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 and handle issues, handle that rather awkward uh, bifurcation of, of organizational bifurcation. It's not an easy thing to, to resolve. Go. Um, I had many of the same hesitations about using the word starvation. In fact, which was why 20 years ago when I wrote Famine Crimes, I didn't use starvation crimes then. But I think um, be because, because of the, 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 I didn't want to make the implication that everyone was dying of starvation. Uh, but I think the, the act of starvation you know, is, is more broadly the act of deprivation. It's the act of, de um, 
legally speaking, if, if, if we look at how it's um, defined on, uh, in these bodies of law, it's not just food. It's also water, health, healthcare, shelter, etc. Um, the law still has some weaknesses. It focuses on, on destroying or rendering useless items. It doesn't have uh, prohibiting activities. So it doesn't, it, 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 it's, it's, um, doesn't deal with livelihoods in, 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 in a more in the suitably comprehensive manner. But nonetheless, the law um, actually is broader than, 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 than inflicting hunger. And therefore, I think the, the act of starvation, if it is separated from the outcome, the experience of, 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 of Frank's starvation, I think is, 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 is workable. But it is, it is a slightly uncomfortable compromise there. I mean, and, 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 and in explaining this to a you know, technical, informed audience like this, that point has to be made. Um, in terms of, of, of famine, um, th there's two issues here. One is how one uh, deals with a, a crisis of excess mortality in which the principal driver is not that material deprivation of food, but let's say the disruption of, 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 of a health and sanitation system. So the cholera outbreak in Yemen you know, was, was, was the sort of the, the leading edge of suffering and mortality as opposed to malnutrition, etc. Um, outcome of very much the same set of military and, and, and political actions by, um, by the same people. And, and, and criminal in the same way. In the, un, in the sort of broad chapeau of starvation crimes, you would, you would include that. But it, but, it, but it is a slight misnomer. And it is also a, obviously a misnomer to call the, that a, a um, famine mortality is because it's a cholera outbreak primarily, although there's a, clearly a malnutrition component as well. So there, there is a problem. There, there are some terminological problems here. And, 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 and we need to sort of footnote and, 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 and clarify them. And one of the key issues there um, is, 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 is the point that you know, having um, large populations in, in, in IPC level four can cause very, very high levels of, of, of mortality. And particularly when you get um, famines that don't follow the, the sort of par paradigmatic agrarian famine model of being concentrated in rural areas um, with a, a, a geographical definition, but actually are, are, are occupational category famines, people whose livelihoods have been destroyed because their salaries haven't been paid, who are spread everywhere, and more particularly in small towns and so on than, than in rural areas. So I expect in Yemen, most of the villages where they grow their own food are probably doing a lot less badly than than, than the former government employees in the small towns. Um, so the, there's a whole lot of, 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 of quite significant adjustments that are, um, ah, that are important there. Now, Dan, um, uh, I, I, I would take the, I mean, if you, I expect someone has done an estimate of, of, of what the economic war in Yemen has cost the Yemen economy and the Yemen people, and I'm sure it is many, many times, many orders of magnitude greater than the, is it one billion that the Emiratis? 1.5. Um, Emiratis and Saudis have donated, and, and I think I would also want to see that amount audited to see where it went to. 
um, and, and who actually benefited from it, um, and so on. And, and, and I think this also brings to, you know, um, creates a, a, a situation in which it, it, um, the conflict of interest among the recipients of that assistant can become extremely uncomfortable if they themselves are also involved in, 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 in collecting information and giving publicity to what's going on, if they, are, um, they themselves are getting money from that source, it, it, it's going to distort our picture. Um, so I, yeah, it, w it, it, it will be a, uh, a, a defense, but I think it's a defense that can be, uh, can be prodded. I would just describe it as I did in my article. I say it's a, a down payment for the tens of billions of dollars of reparations that are due. Any more questions here in London? Yes, Ben. Can you hold on for the microphone? Uh, ben Parker from Irin. Just a follow-up to perhaps focus the last um, element. So do you believe an independent technocratic IPC is even possible when the, A, the consequences could end up in court, and B, the donors may be involved in uh, the causes of the harm? Um, so, sorry. <laughs> Shall I answer that one? Yes. OK, let me answer that one straight away. Um, I mean, the, the IPC has removed one of the, the political subjectivities in, in declaring famine, but it's, it, it's created another, a more focused set of, 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 of political uh, controversies around the politicization of very, very specific um, forms of gathering and obtaining information. So we can see more clearly where the political problem lies. Um, I think part of the... Part of the uh, criminalization, starvation crimes agenda is actually to, it, it, it can be structured to, to reduce the politicization of that. It's not going to remove it by saying actually the, 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 the threshold of severity can be relatively low as long as we know that people have been forced to suffer and the likelihood is that some people have died. We don't need to go up to level five so we can... Um, provided we can identify that you know, there has been grave deprivation and that these criminal acts have been committed, that should be sufficient. Of course, it won't be enough to depoliticize the, uh, the IPC. Thanks for that, Ben. I might throw in an online question here before we come back to London. Um, we have a question about something that w we started to discuss with Dan's question. Specifically with the case of Yemen, there is a vested interest for the war to continue with the selling of arms to the government of Saudi Arabia, thus not holding them accountable to the, atrocity, the atrocities that they commit. Therefore, who and how will, who will enforce humanitarian law, and what is their incentive for doing so? I, I think another area in which we could do with a bit more transparency is um, what actually are the benefits of, of selling arms to, to, to Saudi Arabia? I mean, we may consider it unethical, but actually there's a huge amount of disinformation here. And um, I'm, we have Sam Perlow Freeman from Campaign Against the Arms Trade who can probably give us the, the figures off the top of his head, but they are... Um, and can you, Sam, I'm sure they're, they're minuscule in terms of the jobs uh, preserved by, by, by selling deadly weapons. There's no data, but I've just been... No. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Sam Perlow-Freeman, Campaign Against Arms Trade. There's no data, but I've just been 
doing some back of the envelope calculations today with a few heroic assumptions involved and on a generous as, as assumptions in a sort of good year with high levels of arms sales. Um, UK arms sales to Saudi would uh, support less than 0.1% of total UK employment. I think I can be pretty confident of, of, of that. I would argue, and, 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 and Trump's claim that he had $110 billion of arms contracts was, was completely nonsensical. Um, so if, 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 if we puncture that and we have legal advice saying actually you know, our governments may be complicit in war crimes if they, if, they, if they continue to protect these basically corporate profits. It's nothing to do with very, very little to do with jobs, corporate profits and possibly political donations. Um, then, then I think the argument might shift. Thank you. Um, did I see a question over here? Sarah and then Suzanne. Thanks, Alex. That was incredibly powerful. And I completely agree with your you know, really strong exhortation to make to, you know, make starvation toxic. And I've been thinking about this for a while. I heard you talk about it a few months ago and actually it's stuck with me ever since. But how do we create this, you know, this public movement, this collective advocacy to make starvation really morally reprehensible and, and and I've been particularly reflecting on how do we take the humanitarian community with us that notoriously shies away from a human rights discourse. Maybe we'll take another question, Suzanne. Um, yeah, it's kind of linked, I think. I mean, um, yes, again, I, I completely agree that we need to look more at the political causes of famine. But um, something that I'm struggling with, in particular having kind of worked on kind of Sudan and Darfur in particular um, for the last many years, um, you know, there I kind of see a, a, a really a trend towards kind of depoliticization, medicalization of aid. I mean, looking more at things at an individual level rather than at a population. So what needs to be done, we need to, what you're saying is we need to reverse this. But uh, at the same time, if you, I mean, if anybody in Darfur, say, or any organization in Darfur starts doing a more political analysis of the causes of malnutrition and mortality, um, they'd probably be expelled immediately. So I was wondering kind of how would you um, balance those, well, risks and advantages, I guess, and, and, and even if, even if it's say, possible to do this uh, in, 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 in Yemen, uh, you know, Omar al-Bashir might still think that, um, you know, those same agencies would pose a, a risk in, in Sudan. So, yeah. Thanks, Suzanne. Martin, I think you, you also had a question. Thank you very much. M uh, Martin Barber, I'm now part of a group, new group called United Against Inhumanity. And uh, we very much agree that naming and shaming is one way of um, making it impossible for people to go on doing things. Um, and the question, really following up what Sarah said, is how do you get the maximum number of people to support the idea that naming and shaming is in their interest uh, in all different parts of the world and I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I mean, I've met a number of people recently who say to me, 
gosh, we feel so powerless when confronted with these appalling atrocities. And if you can give us a way of feeling more powerful, that we can actually influence things to change them, then you're going to improve the mental health of this country, as well as solve problems in, in Yemen and Syria. Thank you. You want to take this? remark about improving the mental health of this country, I mean, it, it reminds me of the, the foundation of Amnesty International. This was part of the or original rationale of Amnesty, which was improving the, the, the you know, instilling hope in, 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 in the British people who were <laughs> demoralized at that time. Um, one of the interesting things, actually, and I'll give a Syria case, um, is that in, in, in discussing this, this issue with people from different countries that have been affected by, by starvation, um, quite often it is the, the local activists who, who, who have been boldest and most encouraged by this. So in Syria, for example, um, speaking to people who have been involved in very, very risky activities of, of, of exposing what's going on, let's say, in eastern Ghouta and other, and, and other enclaves. You know, they've, they, you know, they've been documenting the barrel bombs and all sorts of atrocities, you know, arbitrary <coughs> detentions and executions, not starvation, and then they, and which they had just taken as, as they were resigned to it. And, 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 and they, were, they felt empowered and encouraged. And, to, um, by this agenda of starvation crimes, but also um, were much braver than I expected in wanting to document them, um, more so than, than, than some of their international uh, counterparts. Um, um, so I take that as, a, as, as, as an encouragement. The other points I would make about um, in response to Sarah's point about how to um, generate a collective action on this, I'm actually, I, I've actually been quite encouraged over, um, over the last year. And in, in, um, I have a slideshow that I give, you know, which starts off with these images, the Google search images of famine and starvation. And, and a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, I thought I should update these images, do new Google searches because, you know, they're, they're a year old. And I was pleasantly surprised, a very scientific method this is doing the Google image search, <laughs> to find that the, of the top dozen images for, uh, for famine, two-thirds of them referred to starvation and famine as a war crime. Um, and, uh, and I thought, hey, I mean, the, the, something is changing. And, 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 and um, I don't think we... Um, I think this, th there are a number of issues that can actually begin to capture people's imagination and move them, and, and this seems to be one in, 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 in an unexpected way. Um, so it's, it, 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 it's worth a try. And then in um, response to Suzanne's question, um, I mean, the, the two parts of that. One is, of course... You know, there's nothing wrong with the professionalization and technical competence of, of public health and nutrition people. That's great. It's just that they shouldn't neglect. You know, it's not one or the other. And, 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 and similarly, I think in, 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 in this broad field, there are 
the responses to different situations could really be quite different. So that um, we might, in the case of Darfur or in the case of South Sudan, South Sudan is actually a bit different. Let's take Darfur. Darfur, it may, it, we may it may be required for some time just to keep our heads low on this issue, because you know we've had our experience of the um, you know the very ham-fisted efforts of the former ICC prosecutor Moreno Ocampo, which back you know which discredited not only the ICC but damaged humanitarian activities in Darfur. Um, so. It's not a good place to, to push this. Um, South Sudan, I think we have a bit more leverage, and I think one way of doing it would be through the African Union. A bit of shaming there might, 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 might work quite well. Um, so different places, we um, try different, um, different mixtures. Thanks, I, thought, I think we had one more question in the back. Sorry, one more question there. All those will be blessed too. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Sutton. I'm a postdoc researcher at Oxford. Um, I have to ask an IHL lawyer question. Um, I'm just wondering if any of your ideas extend to starvation of combatants. I was recently in a room with some military lawyers, and I'm catching up on this issue because I usually focus on protection of civilians. But what I was surprised to hear was that most people in the room seemed to say that starvation as a tactic of war against soldiers was valid under the laws of war and was totally legal. And so I'm interested in how it seems we've moved on since the Libra Code in terms of starvation of civilians, but something about starving combatants as a tactic hasn't changed. So I wonder if you have thoughts on that other group of maybe victims. Thanks. And we have a question over here. Uh, yeah, Sam from Campaign Against Arms Trade again. I'm interested in this idea of shaming governments and the politics of shame. We know democratic governments do things which are both terrible and unpopular, but which they figure they can get away with, often rightly, that it won't be what people think about when they're voting at the next election or whatever. But there's a point where something reaches the point of scandal, of shame, that it crosses some line where it seems to challenge the very credibility and legitimacy of government if they don't stop what they're doing or at least appear to be changing course. And in the US with uh, Saudi, the combination of Yemen and Khashoggi appears to have pushed this across the line for the Senate, for, for, for Congress, if not for the administration itself, which lacks shame completely. Um, and there's an actual real prospect of Congress forcing an end to US participation in the war in Yemen. Um, in Britain, we haven't reached this point. Of course, the legislature is a lot less independent of, uh, of, of the administration, of, of the executive, than it is in the United States. But it seems we're sort of pretty near it. What is it that, I mean, something can be as awful and horrific as you like, but what is it that's needed to push it over that threshold of shame where the government accepts that, that, that it's just got to stop? Um, Rebecca, um, the, uh, I think you're right. Um, and and it, it's, it's interesting in the, um, the, the debates among the Security Council members um, in the, lead, the discussions, I should say, leading up to the adoption of Resolution 2417, with, with some of which I participated in, I raised this issue. 
of starvation of, of, of combatants. And no one wanted to push it at all. It, 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 there was no interest in raising it at, uh, um, at, at that level. Um, and I'm this weekend going to The Hague to talk to the, um, it's the Assembly of State Parties to the ICC, and, and, and we're having some panels on this. And I, it's, it's on my agenda to ask, so I will tell you what they say. Um, Sam, um, what will push it over? I think um, something completely unexpected could push it over. We really don't know what push it over. All we can do is, 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 is carry on beating this drum, ringing this bell, and saying, Let, let's push it over. Um, and it could be, you know, it, it could be a sudden insight into enlightened self-interest. It could be the sudden realization that you know the biggest demographic impact of famine isn't killing people; it's migration. So, is it in the interests of Europe to have you know mass distress migration out of Yemen? I mean, it's perfectly easy for people to migrate up the Red Sea and, and across the Mediterranean. Um, and so, you know, is, is it is it wise for governments to to um, willfully engage in, in, in a policy that, that is not in, the, in, in, in their medium and long-term interests. Um, there are all sorts of things that could push it, but I think the important thing is, and we don't know what will push it over that, but the important thing is to, is, is to push it as far as we can to that, um, to that threshold, and we will see. Thanks very much, Alex. I think that's all that we have time for today here in London. Thanks to our audience online. I guess my takeaways from this, after a very sobering start documenting the history of famine from Auschwitz to the Irish famine to today, um, you've ended us on a, a, quite a note of optimism, and I like that. Um, that you know, recognition of starvation as a transitory act, as a political act, is half the battle. Um, that the use of coalitions of governments and local activists might somehow get us to the point where starvation becomes so morally toxic that nobody wants to engage with it. And finally, this issue, this persistent um, application of, and use of shame, that it will hit one of these days, um, maybe surprisingly, but it will hit. Um, and maybe to use organizations such as the African Union to help with that endeavor. In any case, thanks to all of you. Thanks to Alex. I hope you've enjoyed this session. The video of this, uh, of this talk will be online in a few days. So please go back and look at it if you've missed anything. Uh, thanks very much, and good night. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.